in the book of Daniel and uh, working our way through this marvelous book in the Old Testament. It's one of the 66 that the kids uh, just sung about. And this book, to me, is one of the best books for young people, especially because you see an example or several examples of, of not only young people, but we watch the life of Daniel in particular, starting from a young man into an old man. And we see how he lives his life, how uh, Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, a.k.a. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you speak better Babylonian than Hebrew, and how those young men comport themselves. These are exiles in Babylon. Context for those of you who don't know, the Babylonians came in there in several waves of attack. They took Jerusalem, they took the temple, they took the articles out of the temple, stole them, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, and exiled hundreds of Hebrews hundreds of miles away to Babylon. And uh, we, we watch how they behave there. We see several different kings uh, come and go. We watch Daniel. We watch his three friends. And there's so many things that we can learn. I call the book of Daniel a uh, future hope that's found in the past. Because Daniel is, has a, uh, a story to tell you about these people, but it also has a vision. Uh, I'll use the word apocalypse carefully. Apocalypse means you pull back the curtain. doesn't mean the end of the world. It means you pull back the curtain on something and you see behind the curtain and you see what's there. And in Daniel, you have an apocalypse there in the back half where God... Uh, uses this man, and not only him, I mean, even in the early chapters, you see this kind of thing through visions and dreams, and you have a big picture of not only their time, but even past their time. This is a severely criticized book of the Bible. Probably the biggest criticisms of any book in the Bible are Daniel and Genesis, back to back. It, this is a savagely criticized book. They, the scholars will criticize the language because it's in Hebrew and Aramaic. They'll say that it's not written by Daniel. They'll say he got his facts wrong. He got his history wrong. There was no such person as this. There's no such person as that. They will say that it could not, could not, could not have been written in the 5th or 6th century BC because it speaks accurately about Alexander the Great and the conquests of Alexander the Great. That's impossible. That means that there's something called predictive prophecy, and we know that there isn't, according to the scholars, and so they say it was written in the 2nd century BC, and so on and so on, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. I mean, they ripped this book apart. I will give you an example today of, of one of the things that they attack. But as I've said to you, I go with Jesus and what he says about it. So I'll take my, I'll, I'll, I'll put my money on the one who rose from the dead. And Jesus seems to have had no qualms with Daniel. He quotes from Daniel. He quotes from Daniel first century about the future interpreting something in Daniel chapter 9 as referring to the future time even past Jesus. He doesn't seem to say all these things that the modern scholars say, so I'll take my chances with what he has to say about this book. Uh, but we watch 
we're in chapter 6 now, and we've watched uh, Daniel, we've watched his three uh, friends. When you survey this book, you're going to find that Daniel serves under at least four kings. And the title of our message today, sorry, I'll go back, is uh, the, we're talking about the lion's den. So in a den of lions, very famous story. Before we get there, important to understand, this man served under at least four kings. Um, some of them are named, some of them, one of them in particular is not. It's complicated because Daniel will jump back and forth in time without telling you as if you should know, as if you should understand, as if you know the, the time and the place and the politics. And the fact is that we don't. We're 2,500 years removed from this. So it takes a lot of work to figure out sometimes what in the world is he talking about and what time period is he talking about and so on. We know that he serves under Nebuchadnezzar. That's easy. We see him at the beginning. We know a lot about him from the history books. We know that he serves later under Belshazzar, who we know very little from the history books. As uh, we talked about uh, Two weeks ago, Belshazzar is the, the king that's there for the famous handwriting on the wall that happens. And that night, when Daniel is able to interpret that, that strange supernatural thing where this hand comes out of nowhere and writes on the wall when they're having this huge party, is kind of a wild debaucherous party and they take the all of the articles of gold from the temple that they looted in Jerusalem uh, uh, scores of years before and they use it uh, for this purpose this this kind of gross party that his hand comes on the wall right and writes in Aramaic and they bring in Daniel and Daniel's able to interpret it and that night the Babylonians fall to the Medo-Persians. We see it at the back end of chapter 5. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. That's the end of chapter 5. Belshazzar is, a, is a, another example of how they attack this book because most, most scholars up until very recently said there's no such person Whoever wrote this book doesn't know what they're talking about. It wasn't Belshazzar who was there when, when the Medo-Persians took out the Babylonians. It was Nabonidus, who you see on your screen, who's not named in Daniel. And it's a complex problem, and people thought, well, Belshazzar is a fictitious, and Daniel doesn't know what he's talking about, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, a little while ago, I think it was a few decades ago, they found something in archaeology that said that Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus. Aha. Nabonidus married into Nebuchadnezzar's family, married a daughter. It's complicated, but he got into the family that way. And we know that he was out of town, so to speak, when the Medo-Persians came in and took out the Babylonians. And he stationed, therefore, his son Belshazzar as a co-regent. So now we know this. We say, oh, okay. And so scholars have shifted a little bit. And they say, okay, now we think maybe Belshazzar could be a real guy. And they give a little bit. But then we run into Darius here, which is in at the back end of chapter 5 and moving into chapter 6. This is the lion's den guy, the, the king who's there. Darius the Mede, he's called. And we know nothing about Darius the Mede from the history books. Silent. We know about Darius the Great. 
We know about him from the Bible, but this is later on. This is in the book of Ezra. We know quite a bit about Darius the Great, but Darius the Mede here, we don't know anything about. And so everybody's, oh, well, Darius the Mede, this guy doesn't exist, or Daniel doesn't know his history. He's jumping forward too fast, and he's picking Darius the Great. The dates are wrong. He thinks his audience is dumb and so on. And so there's this criticism, right? Even this passage we're reading, you know, at the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6, they attack it, attack it, attack it. As I said, I'll take my chances on what Jesus has to say. Just a tip for you. When you run into these kinds of Bible problems, listen carefully to me because there's a movement today of deconstruction. I spoke to a, uh, a man in this church who helped me this morning drive in all the gear and bring in, uh, not everything you see here, but bring in a lot of gear and bring me in this morning early. And we spoke about this. There are uh, uh, people who are deconstructing their faith, walking away from Christianity, abandoning the faith because of things like this. They say, oh, well, the Bible got this wrong, the Bible got this wrong, I don't have an answer, blah, 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 and they throw away their faith. Can I just challenge you, those of you who are trying to live Christianly and trying to have faith, just hold on before you start deconstructing your faith when you run into these problems. Usually what happens is somewhere down the road, they find something in the rocks that explains it. They find something in archaeology and they say, okay, now it makes sense. Now, now the Christians may be on to something. Maybe their Bible is right after all on this. And you see example after example after example of this in biblical history. So just hold on before you freak out when you start listening to these things on the internet. Don't take my word for it. Just look up Darius the Mede and you will see the savage attacks on this very passage that we're going to look at today. And then you see later on, Daniel serves under Cyrus, the Persian king. And Cyrus, we know a lot about from the history books. But today, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 6 briefly, the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Such a famous story. Uh, most people know even the phrase, Daniel and the lion's den. And they say to themselves, oh yeah, that's that Bible story where the guy got saved from the lions. Yes? How many of you, you've never ever heard of this before? Daniel and the lion's den, totally, totally new to you. It's okay, don't be embarrassed. Yeah, it's very much part of even the language. Sometimes we say, you know, if you're in trouble, we say, well, it was real, in a real den of lions there, in a real lion's den, right? It comes out of the Bible. It's from Daniel chapter 6. And it's a super dramatic story where and it's very, very easy to read. You see at the beginning, this king, this, this Mede, Darius, again, mysterious figure from the history books, but the Bible clearly declares that he was a real person. He would have reigned for a very short time because Cyrus the Persian is going to um, bring the Jews back from Babylon to Jerusalem very, very shortly after what we're reading. So, and we know this from the history books. So, um, uh, uh, Cyrus is very much known for this, and uh, he feels called by God to do this. So, this what we're reading here takes place over a very, very short period of time. And this, this king, Darius, very large kingdom apparently, because he's, he, we learn about the politics and the structure right from the beginning. So we're told that he appoints 120 leaders, they're called satraps, to rule throughout the kingdom. 
So you've got the king and you've got 120. But from the 120, he picks three administrators, and uh, one of whom is, guess who, Daniel. And we're at the end of the Babylonian captivity here. This lasted for 70 years. Daniel was there for the whole thing. So he started there as a young man, and he lived there for 70 years. His friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, drop off the pages of the scripture. As soon as the incident in the fiery furnace is over, they're gone. We don't hear from them again. But Daniel, he stays through this whole thing. He's there through the whole book, serves under at least four kings. Uh, he, he's an older man now. He's 70 plus whatever so he might be in his 80s or 90s, even if you have issues with the way the Bible does ages sometimes, there's no doubt about it, he is now a senior man. One of the three administrators that Darius appoints is Daniel. And these satraps, this group of 120, is accountable to the top three, Daniel being one of the top three, so that the king might not suffer loss, we're told. This probably means that they had to be accountable so that there wasn't any theft going on of the king's riches. There wasn't any planned assassination that might happen to the king. So he's got a structure. He's the president, if you will. He's got his little group of three, and then he's got the rest of the 120, and this is the whole system that he sets up. Lo and behold, Daniel is so distinguished among these administrators. Remember, he's lived there for 70 plus, or at least 70 years. So distinguished and so exceptional, we're told, in his qualities that the king plans to set Daniel up, a Hebrew exile. He plans to set him up as number two over the whole kingdom. He's going to be right next to Darius, a Hebrew exile who has, who has gone up the ranks in the political ranks of an, a godless system. He rises to power and to authority and is so trusted and so respected as a politician. Folks, this is politics, what you're looking at, and it's not a democracy, folks. This is a dictatorship where Darius is the boss, and that's it, that's all. And even in that system, this man has risen to such a high level of trust that he's going to be put as number one over the kingdom next to Darius, that's verse 3 of chapter 6. Well, the others don't like it. The others don't like it at all. Verse 4, the administrators and the satraps, they say, we don't like this guy, Daniel. Maybe he's going to hold us a little too accountable. Maybe what we're taking on the side, he's going to find out. Maybe they don't like him because he's Hebrew, but they don't like him. And it's very clear in the text, they are going to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. They're going to dig up the dirt. He's lived there for 70 years. Surely he must have paid somebody off, maybe $130,000 for someone to keep their mouth closed, just being a little facetious. Maybe he's going to make a plea deal. Maybe he made a plea deal in year number 35. You know, he pled guilty to tax evasion, just being a little facetious. Maybe there's a picture of him in blackface. 
Do you see what I'm saying? It's a politics, folks. Nothing has changed, or this hasn't changed much in 2,500 years, right? So they say, we're going to dig up the dirt on this guy. We're going to try and find grounds. He's got to have a skeleton in his closet somewhere. But the problem is they can't find any. They're unable to do so. No corruption in him, no scandal, no secret payments, no, you know, none of these things that you see, they can't find anything in him. He's trustworthy, not corrupt, not negligent, 70 years, and he's kept his life clean all those years. Now a senior man. So finally, they come up with a brilliant plan, verse 5. They say, we won't find any basis for charges against this guy uh, unless it has something to do with his religion because we know about his religious devotion. I mean, it's very obvious. It's the law of his God. That's the number one thing to him in his life. So we're going to take that, and we're going to turn it on him and turn it into the kryptonite that's going to take him down. Brilliant plan. So they're going to massage the king's ego at the same time, and they go to the king, this whole group, and they say, oh, you're so terrific, Darius, may you live forever. And they all, we all have agreed that you, Darius, you should make a new law, albeit temporary, but you should make a new law, and you should enforce this law. By the way, no separation between church and state. 2,500 years ago, it's all mishmash, right? Religion, politics, government, it's all squashed together in that time. So they say, we want you to make a law. And the law is, hey, king, you're going to like this, that anyone who prays to any god or human during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, that they face the death penalty. So they're going to be executed you apparently have a den where you keep these lions for, the, for your, the way you do the death penalty. So you enforce the death penalty for anyone who doesn't worship any other god but you. They can't worship another man. They can't worship another god. They only can worship you. How do you like that, Darius? Can you sign it into law? Well, of course, he's got this big ego, I suppose. And he says, sure, I'll sign it. Sounds like a really good plan to me, verse 8. So put it in, in a decree and put it into writing so that it cannot be altered. You know, we're the Medo-Persian Empire, and we've got this whole setup where if you sign it into law, it can't be repealed. Now, apparently, it's only for a 30-day dispensation, but this is what they want. And they say, you sign this into law. Thank you very much. So the, the king, no qualms about it. Verse 9, he puts a decree in writing, signs, puts his seal on, it's done. Verse 10, Daniel hears of it. Of course he would. He's right up at the top of the food chain there. He hears of this decree, this new law that has come down from the top. What does he do? He goes to his upstairs room where the windows are open toward his city of Jerusalem, which is hundreds of miles away. Three times a day, we're told, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God. So he does the exact same thing. He hears of this new law. He hears he's, he's going to be killed if he does this. People are going to be thrown to the lion's den unless they pray to Darius and Darius alone. Doesn't change anything in Daniel's life. He does exactly the same thing as he had done before, verse 10 at the end. So then these men, this is what they're waiting for, right? They're just, they, this, Daniel's behaving exactly as they predict. This is what they're waiting for. So they, they go as a group. They find Daniel. They see Daniel. They take their cell phones out. They start taking pictures. 
Say we see him, he's praying to another God. This is not good, but they're smiling like a Cheshire cat because they know they've got Daniel right where they want him. They take their cell phones out, they take pictures, and then they go and they show the pictures to the king. My translation of the Bible, okay? So they show the, tra- the, the, the pictures to the king, and they say, hey, didn't you publish a decree? Didn't you have a new law in 30 days? Anybody prays to another God or human? You throw them into the lion's den. Don't you remember you signed that law? Look at these pictures. The king says, the, the decree stands. Of course I signed the law. But they say, Daniel, look, we have the photos here. Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, look, he pays no attention to you, okay? Now, Darius really likes Daniel. He's going to put him right next to him. He's going to put him in charge of the whole kingdom. Now he's got himself in a real pickle because he's, he signed it. He signed it into law. He can't, he can't go against it. They say, look, Daniel pays no attention to you. He still prays three times a day. Look, picture number one, two, three. We've got it all time stamped, etc. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He likes Daniel. Daniel has a terrific reputation. He trusts Daniel, and he's got himself in a big pickle here, a big problem, stuck between a rock and a hard place. Politically speaking, he's got no way out. The the people who have gone as this big group to him, they know they've got the king pinned in the corner. They know they've got Daniel all but dead, and they think that they've won. You can't change this law, and you know it. So verse 16, the king gives the order. They take Daniel and they throw him into the lion's den. There apparently is no pushback from Daniel. There's no record of him struggling. There's no record of him going to the king and saying, King, you've been had. These people conspired against me. They used your ego. They pinned you into a corner. You've been had. You've been had. You need to find a way out. He doesn't do that. He doesn't resist. They take him. They throw him into the lion's den. And he shouts the king to Daniel as Daniel's being lowered into a pit of lions. May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. I really like you, Daniel. I do not like this whole situation. He says, may your God help you. He's lowered into the pit. They take a stone. They place it over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring into the wax there and, and with the ring of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed That's it. It's like the casket has closed. And then the king returned to his palace, spent the night. He's uptight. He's not eating. He doesn't want any entertainment. He's filled with anxiety. He can't sleep. He gets up early in the morning, first light of dawn. He goes and he hurries over to the lion's den. He comes near the den and he calls out to Daniel in anguished voice, Daniel! Servant of the living God as your God whom you serve continually as he rescued you from the den of lions. He waits for the answer. Verse 21, may the king live forever. He hears the voice of the old man, Daniel. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, God's sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king is elated. He is overjoyed. 
Get him out of that pit. He gives orders. Lift him out of that den. And when Daniel's lifted out of the den, he's not harmed one bit, no wound, nothing found on him because he had trusted in his God. And then the king, he gets upset. He's very angry because he has been had. He has been taken advantage of. They put him into a corner. They're basically saying, you know, King, your ego is so big and your intelligence is so low that we put this over on you. Well, he is some upset now, very, very angry. He says, all these men who falsely accused my friend Daniel, take them, throw them into the lion's den, throw their families into the lion's den, all of them. And we're told before they even reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and killed them all. You say, that's really, really mean of the king. Yes, it is. Folks, it's Babylon or Medo-Persia. It's 2,500 years ago. He's not Hebrew. Okay, so he feels very, very angry, and he does this to these people. And, and then he writes this edict to, to everyone he can find, and he says that the, the God that Daniel serves... Uh, here's a decree. It has to be issued in every part of my kingdom. People have to fear and reverence this God. He's the living God. He endures forever. This is a non-Hebrew saying this. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues. He saves. He performs signs, wonders, heavens in the earth. He rescued Daniel from the den of lions. Verse 28, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian who would come immediately afterward the chapter ends. It's an amazing, dramatic story. You see this highly respected politician. You see this conspiracy. You see Daniel thrown to face his death. And you see the tables turned terribly on those who conspired against him. What can we learn? I call this thriving in Babylon. How is it that Daniel, for 70 years, managed to live through all of this stuff? And all of these things, I mean, you see him in chapter 1, and he's, he's doing his thing, and he says, I'm not going to eat this food that the king is offering me. It defiles me. It defiles my friends. You see him take a stand. You see him live his life. How does he do this? And folks, I've said it to you before, we do not live in circumstances that are entirely dissimilar. In a way, we live in Babylon today. This is not... Uh, you're kidding yourself if you think that this is the 1950s and this is somehow a Christian culture. It isn't. Yes, we have many, many freedoms in this culture, but folks, stand up and say uh, uh, that Jesus is the exclusive way and truth and life and watch what happens. The same thing is what happened back then. You know, even across the Roman Empire, it wasn't that people were worshiping Jesus as God that bothered the Romans. It was that people were worshiping Jesus exclusively as God that bothered the Romans. And the same is true today, folks. So don't kid yourself. We're not living in a so-called Christian nation. There's a lot of similarities to Babylon. You don't work in a Christian workplace unless you work in a church. And I've been to some churches that are less Christian than some non-Christian workplaces. Just a joke. But, you, you know, you understand what I'm saying. Your kids don't go to schools where all they're learning is Christianity and the Bible unless you try to send them to a Christian school. But eventually, they're gonna, they're, their eyes are going to be open somewhere, and they're going to learn, that, hey, there's a worldview around me that is a total clash against this book. 
So it's a, it's a lot more like Babylon than you think. I love big cats, so I'm going to show you some big cats here, uh, including one shot that I took by myself. I was about 30 feet from this big cat. I'll show it to you in a moment. So thriving in Babylon, just three simple things for you that we learn from the life of Daniel. Number one, when you live and you recognize that you live in a Babylonian situation, number one, and we see this all over Daniel, we see it uh, in other people in the scripture as well. Daniel has a lot of similarities to Joseph from the book of Genesis. These people, and Daniel, a great example, keep your integrity. Verse 4, you see Daniel, they, they are looking for something that they can find against him. And they can't find anything. Integrity is who you are when nobody is looking. Keep your integrity even if you're in a Babylonian situation. There's nobody else around you. There, you're in a, there's no other believers around you. You've got no encouragement. You're isolated. Your workplace, you're isolated. You're alone. It's ungodly. Your school, you feel isolated alone. Your own family, you feel isolated alone. It's ungodly. Keep your integrity anyway. Integrity is what God looks at. He looks at the condition of your heart, and he wants to see who you are when nobody else is looking. Daniel would not, would not, would not compromise ever. Seventy years living there. He never compromised his integrity, not one single time. These people are enemies of his. They want to get rid of him. They are digging everywhere. They can't find anything, not one single thing can they find against him. It's amazing. It's an amazing life that this man lived in a very difficult circumstance. I mean, he could have stolen a little bit on the side when he thought no one was looking. He could have, folks, and maybe he would have gotten away with it. But to him, God is always looking. And that's the way that you've got to live your life. He's always looking, friends. He's looking when you're on your phones. Young people, when you're on your phones, looking at whatever you look at on your phones and your devices, God sees what you're looking at. I'm going to tell you, young people, and, and men and women, your spouse may not see what you're looking at, but God sees it. He sees it. Will you live with integrity or not? You are one tap away from destruction. One tap. Will you live your life with integrity? This is what God is expecting, and this is what we see from the life of Daniel. Number two, live your testimony. I didn't take that one, but that is... You know, lions have a way of looking at you. Any of you ever seen a lion live up close, not in a zoo? Well, even in a zoo. How many in a zoo? How many not in a zoo, like in the wild? Okay, so a lot of... You ever notice even in a zoo, the way a lion will look at you, it's like you're not even there. You're just... They look at you like you're a piece of paper. I mean, it's like they're looking through you to the back wall, you know. They're, they're very intimidating, aren't they? The way that they look at you and the way that they go about their business, very intimidating. These are female lions here, and uh, they're the ones who do the work, you know. I learned this when I was in Zambia in Africa and went on a safari. It's the females that do all the work. The men are lazy. <laughs> Some of you elbow your husband and say, yeah, you're like the lion, <laughs> The men are really lazy. The women do the hunting. They do the work. The men are lazy. They get into a lot of fights with one another. They run in gangs. They run in packs, lions. 
and they, sometimes they kill each other, uh, but the women are doing all the work, and this is a picture that someone took of the women doing the work. Live your testimony. Live your testimony. Verse 5, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. How'd they know that? How'd they know that he took the law of his God so seriously? Well, because he's very outspoken, very outspoken. He says, no, I'm not eating this food coming from this king's table. It defiles me. I'm not going to eat it. Whoa, who are you? Well, he worships Yahweh, and he makes it very clear right from the get-go, as a young man, this is who I am, this is who I worship, and he lives it. And his enemies know it, and his enemies say the only way we're going to get him is on his religious devotion, because we know about the man's religion. He's made that crystal clear for all of his decades that he has lived in this land, he has made his religious views crystal clear. And apparently he has done it in a way that's won the respect of the higher-ups and the politicians and the Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and, you know, these kings. Apparently he's done it in such a way that he's rising in power and authority in this alien land of Babylon he doesn't care. He lives his testimony, come what may, this is who I worship, this is who I am, and that's the way that he lives. Before I was a pastor, I worked in uh, commercial printing for whatever it was, 16 years. And I remember uh, before Janet and I were, were married, that's like 100 years ago, you know, almost 30 years, okay? So I think it was about 31 years ago. I remember... Uh, I think I had proposed to her already. I can't remember. It's so long ago. And uh, <laughs> we were like 12 when we got married, you know. So um, uh, I remember going to this job interview, you know, and uh, I fasted and prayed. I said, I'm going to marry this girl. I need a job. A job would help. You know, she may not say yes if I marry. If I, if I have no job, I want to marry you. She can say, you got no job, get lost. You know, so, so I said, well, I need a job. So this, this is a job interview. I fasted and prayed for this job interview. Okay, went to the job interview. They started asking me all kinds of questions. So I told them I was a Christian. I thought, well, too bad. I'm gonna, if I fasted and prayed, I'm going to live my testimony. If they don't like it, well, I have to trust God to get me another job. So as I told them I'm a Christian, blah, blah, blah. It was very upfront, very upfront with my, with my life and all these things. Okay, very good. And I thought, well, we'll see if they call me back. Lo and behold, you wouldn't believe who got hired for the job. Me. This company hired me, and I worked there for years and years and years and was always very upfront uh, about my testimony. I remember one time the cu customer came in and had all this porn that they wanted photocopied. I said, I won't. I, said, I won't photocopy it. Coworker came and said, he's the Christian guy. I'll photocopy it for you. Right? But they respected the fact that I lived my, lived my life, lived my testimony with them. You know, it was so cool when I went to the boss years later and I said, you know, I'm leaving. I'm going to go and be a pastor in the, in the church that I attend. I've been asked to come on staff there. I'm leaving. When are you leaving? Oh, two weeks. You know how nice they were to me. Do you know how much, how respectful they were to me? At that time, my wife was doing a little bit of work there as well. You know how respectful they were to us? And they were like, you know, we're so happy for you. You get to do what you want to do. We have to slave over here. And you feel, you know, called by your God to do your whole God thing, whatever. But we really respect it. And we're really happy for you. They were so nice to me. Years and years later, 
I got a phone call. Maybe might have been three three summers ago. I got a phone call from that boss who interviewed me for that first job interview, and she said, "My brother died of pancreatic cancer. I want you to do his funeral." I was so surprised that she called me, and she said, "I want you to do the funeral because I had another family member who died, and that we got this Catholic priest to do the funeral and the." Catholic priest said he didn't even know the guy and said, he's in hell, he's burning in hell and all this stuff. And so we want you to do the funeral and we don't want you to say that my brother's burning in hell, please. So, so I went and did the, did the funeral. He was young, pancreatic cancer, violent pancreatic cancer. He worked in a school. There were all these children filled the chapel, all these children. And so I just talked about the man's service. He had a real servant's heart. And I said, you know, it's a servant's heart. And who had a servant's heart? Jesus had a servant's heart. And just, just did that. And they were so appreciative. Again, you live your testimony, folks. You never know who's watching. And you can end up sometimes so surprised by the response of a Babylonian world that we live in who might just call you back, who might just hire you for that job, because they see something about you and they see you live what you talk about, you live. You, you walk, your talk. And finally, and this is the shot that I took, uh, keep your consistency under stress. Can you see that? Look at that. I mean, I'm so proud of that picture. Okay. I got like 5,000 of them and I just picked the best one. You know, click, 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 click. You just pick the best one so you can show off. So we go to this safari. You know, we were one day, we went to, a, to an orphanage in Zambia to build a building there, me and just a couple of other people from the previous church I was at. And we went there, and we had one chance at this safari. I will never forget it as long as I live. That lion looking at me like, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to eat you. you. It was so intimidating. We were like 30 feet from two lions. That was one of them. That was a male. And he was like, I couldn't sleep at night because the tour guide, you know, we're driving a Jurassic Park truck there, you know, it's got no bulletproof shield or anything like that, you know, it's out in the open. I don't even know if the driver had a rifle on him, and he said, oh, we're going to come back, now we know where they are, we're going to come back tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, you're going to come back tomorrow, he's going to eat me. I mean, look at the way the thing is looking at you, so intimidating, you know, and they just stare at you and look at you. And they just don't turn away. They just keep looking at you and staring at you like, listen, you're nothing to me, buddy. You may think you're something, but you're nothing to me. So come back tomorrow and, you know, we'll, I'll look at you again. So anyway, here's Daniel going into, folks, a pit of lions. This is what Darius made for the death penalty, a pit of lions? Man, that has got to be the most intimidating, terrifying way to die. Let's take some lions, throw them into an enclosed pit, and we will use them to execute anybody. That's our version of the death penalty. It is the most terrifying, most intimidating thing that I can think of. And here, Daniel, when this happens, when this law comes down, Daniel is not phased at all. You talk about stress. You talk about anxiety. He's not stressed at all. He does the exact same thing as he's always done. Well, it's time to pray. Maybe it's my last time. So 
it's time to pray. I'm not changing. I'm not changing who I am. I'm staying who I am. I'm staying consistent. This is a law that they passed down. Well, so be it. I've got better things to do. I've got bigger fish to fry. It's time to pray. Oh, it's prayer time again. Time to pray. Oh, here they come with their cameras and their cell phones. Yeah, it's time to pray. And he keeps doing what he's doing, so consistent and unfazed. And then when the king gives the order, drop him in the den. We don't see any resistance from Daniel. Zero. There's no record of him resisting. Nothing. He doesn't go to the king. He doesn't try and fight for his life. He doesn't try to negotiate. He doesn't try to say, king, you've been had. You've been manipulated. Are you stupid? They massaged your ego. They think you're dumb, and they're trying to take me out. Don't you understand what's going on? Don't you see how you've been tricked into all this? Don't, don't you want to save my life? Don't you want to put me in charge? No, he doesn't do anything. Doesn't resist. Nothing. No problem. He will face it. He will take it. And then when he's rescued... Or when, when the king sees him, verse 21, hey, I'm still here. I'm still here. God protected me. You know why God protected me? Because I never did anything wrong to you. I never conspired against you like those other guys did. I never did anything wrong with you. And this is why God had mercy on me and God delivered me in the night from these beautiful big cats. I, I, I slept on one of them and they were so nice to me. It was like they were like a pillow to me, King. Do you know why? Because I never did anything wrong to you. And God, in his way of justice, protected me. And you can see by the king's response how angry he became to those who conspired against him. You keep your consistency when you're stressed, when you're facing persecution, when you're facing the squeeze of whatever, you keep your consistency. No, this is what I do. This is how I worship God. I will continue to worship God, whatever. Whatever law they pass, whatever this they change, whatever that they change. Folks, who knows? It may become illegal for us to do what we're doing right now in this space at some point in the future. Who knows? Who cares? Folks, we continue to do what we do because there's bigger fish to fry. It's time to pray. It's time to worship God. He can take care of all the other stuff. We put him first and we say, we, can, we continue to do what we do. You know, individual Christian in this room, you say, I continue to worship God. Whatever happens, let it happen. But I'm not changing that. I am going to stay consistent. And when you do that, you will see ultimately the blessing of God on your life. And that's how you thrive in Babylon, even in a den of lions. Would you stand with me? We're going to close the service in prayer. I see Nick and Viano in the room. And uh, um, Grace, if you're here, you want to come and you can, you can uh, play and you can sing as we finish up in prayer here, whatever you like, whatever song you like. Father, we are so grateful, so thankful that we can look across back in time and see this incredible example of this man. We watch him for decades and decades, so many lessons that we can learn. I pray for each person in this room, each household that's represented, parents, children, grandparents, those who are watching online, those who are going to watch online, in the name of Jesus in this time, in the 21st century, right here in the province of Quebec and Canada, a province where we've secularized where we've pushed 
religion out. So we don't want the public expression of religion here uh, with secular laws and so on. And in a, in a, a veritable Babylon, uh, Lord, may we be people who thrive, who worship you anyway, people who somehow win the respect of a culture around us. In the name of Jesus, Lord, fill each person, each family with the Spirit of God, that we would truly be your witnesses, your people in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you today. Remember, if you have kids up to the age of 12, to register them for the Sweet Treat Sunday next week. Enjoy your long weekend. God bless you, everyone. Just what to do